great to have you here along with Tim. I want to welcome you. Uh, especially if uh, you're a guest, maybe here coming in for, for baptisms, uh, really glad to have you joining us. Uh, you, have, you have joined us on a day when we are partway through uh, a series looking at the end of this age. Uh, this is a series we've called The End of the Beginning. It's looking through what the Bible uh, teaches and uh, explains about how things will, will work out in the end. And so today, uh, we come to really what's the climax of, of that sequence of events. So it's a, it's a good day to be here. And uh, that climax is the second coming of Jesus. Now I say climax because it is the thing that kind of we've been anticipating since the first coming of Jesus. Uh, that's always the way it is with, with stories, good stories, is that there's a buildup to sort of the, the climax. Uh, in my mind, I think especially of uh, like action films where there's a lot of I mean, there's lots of action, but there's always a build-up to kind of the final sequence, and uh, that's, that's how it's done well. I remember hearing a director, Peter Berg, talk about um, his job as a director. He said, if I'm doing my job well, uh, there's a, a building tension up until the final sequence. He described it like, uh, like pulling back on a bow, and, and all the tension finally is released kind of in the, in the final sequence, and it's satisfying because everything is hopefully resolved, but also just because there's this energy that's been, been built up. And the second coming of Jesus, I think, is a little bit like, like that. Uh, I say that because uh, there hasn't just been a time of waiting for Jesus. There's been a, a time of expectation. And because there has been, I think, since the first coming of Jesus, a growing tension in our world. Uh, I say that because it is true that, I mean, the gospel has God gone forward into the world. The church is flourishing in many parts of the world. But there is evil and injustice as well. And it is growing, and there is a wickedness that has taken hold in the heart of human beings. There is a godlessness that we see around us, a darkness. I mean, whether we're inside the church or outside the church, we'd look around us and say, things are not as they should be. And so there's a, there's a mounting tension. Uh, there's, I think, a longing, especially in the church, for the day when light will finally and fully shine forth into the world. And that is the day uh, that we are looking forward to. That is the day that Jesus will return. Now, we don't know everything about the return of Jesus, but we do know enough. Uh, we know enough to be encouraged about what is to come, and we know enough to remain hopeful and faithful here and now. So every uh, week, we have a question that we're looking at, kind of dig into, and here's our question for today. It is, what will happen when Jesus returns? And kind of a secondary question is, and what does it mean for us, for us now? So I'm going to pray for us, and then we are going to dig into this uh, this all-important question. Uh, Lord God, we are thankful for uh, this day when we can gather together, we can, we can tune in online. Lord, we can uh, come before you, uh, devote ourselves to your word, and, um, and Lord, to the, to the topic of the end, and Jesus, your, your second coming. I, I pray as we dig into this, Lord, that you would give us uh, humble hearts, you'd give us uh, clear minds, Lord, that we could, we could understand and we could think and consider uh, what your scripture reveals. Uh, I pray, Lord, you'd use me in spite of my own sin, and Lord, that through this we would indeed uh, have a greater expectation, greater certainty uh, about what is to come when you return. So I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So once again, uh, our question is, uh, what will happen when Jesus returns? There'll be three parts to the answer. And the first one is this, uh, Jesus will return in power and glory. In power and glory. Uh, what I mean by that is that uh, the return of Christ will not be a secret or like a subtle thing. 
Um, if you think about it in comparison to the first coming of Jesus, uh, that was an amazing event. And I mean, a lot of supernatural, amazing things. The Christmas story is basically what it is. There are angels, star in the sky, virgin birth, but uh, it was fairly localized. Like if you were not right in Bethlehem, I don't know that you would have known that anything was actually going on that evening. Uh, even the angels in the sky, I don't think people uh, very far off would have actually known what was going on. It was, certainly was not a worldwide event. And yet it's, um, the second coming of Jesus is described very, very differently. So uh, this is Matthew chapter 24, uh, verses 27 to 31. It'll be on the screen. Uh, this is Jesus talking to his disciples and saying, look, here's, what, here's what's going to happen when I uh, return. He describes it this way. He says, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out, send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So clearly uh, here, whatever it is, because there's imagery here that you know, could be, is figurative, probably maybe there's a meteor shower, there's some grand event though in the sky, but what's very clear is that the whole world knows what's going on. And the point that we can take for ourselves right now is that we're not going to find out about the second coming of Jesus on Instagram. You know what I mean? We're not going to see someone's feed and be like, what? Where did this happen? If you think about the big events of our world, no matter how big they are right now, that tends to be how we find out about things. Usually it's secondhand. It's on the news, it's on Twitter, it's, it's somewhere, and we say, oh, that, now I know what's happening. That's not what is going to happen when Jesus returns. We won't be wondering if we missed it. It will be, it will be a grand spectacle, there will be power, it will be glorious, it will be visible, and it will be unmistakable. That's the first thing we need to know about the coming of Jesus. When he comes, we will know, especially the church. It says that the elect are gathered to witness this, this awesome event. So he will come in power and glory. It'll be visible. It'll be worldwide. But then what will happen when he gets here? So there are two more parts to our answer, and both of them are going to be found. Uh, we're going to turn to Revelation 19. So we're going to spend the rest of our time there. And uh, here is the second point, the second part of the answer. What will happen when Jesus returns? Well, Jesus will destroy evil for good. And so I'm going to read uh, Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. The first uh, sort of section here. And Revelation is uh, a letter written by John of a vision that he was given by Jesus of, of what will happen. So here's what he, he records. He says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We're going, to, we're going to pause there for a moment. First question uh, 
maybe that we, you might be asking is how, like how do we know for sure that this is Jesus? Because it doesn't say Jesus there in the text. Uh, and the answer to that is that there are a number of names given to this writer and they all match up with descriptions of Jesus elsewhere in the Bible. So there's universal agreement in the church that this is Jesus. For example, faithful and true. I mean, Jesus calls himself his I am the truth in John 14. It says there of the writer that in righteousness he judges. And we find in 2 Timothy, it says of Jesus, he will judge the living and the dead. Uh, Jesus is called the word of God in John chapter 1. It says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And in 1 Timothy 6, uh, Jesus is just called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So very clearly, uh, what we would say here is this is in fact Jesus, the second coming of Jesus. There is no question about that. And the other part that seems very clear is that he seems to be riding into some sort of a battle. You see the language there. Uh, there's talk of a, a horse. He's riding a horse, which is a military form of transportation. Uh, verse 12, he judges and makes war. Verse 14, the armies of heaven are coming behind him. And verse 15, interestingly, a sharp sword is coming out of his mouth with which to strike down the nations. So again, it seems clear that a conflict of some sort is coming. The tension is building towards this event. And the next couple of verses uh, kind of um, accentuate this tension. It builds. So here's verse, verses 17 and 18. Again, John says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Now, I think we'd agree this is a fairly dark and ominous call that the angel is making to these birds to come and apparently feast on the flesh, the carnage that is going to come from whatever battle is about to ensue. So kind of the anticipation, the tension is growing. And next we get the battle scene itself. And so this is 19 to 21. And John says this, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped in its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword which came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. If you haven't been to church in a while, welcome back. Uh, you come on a day with, uh, with some imagery that is very striking. Uh, you might be thinking to yourself, what, what exactly are we reading here? I mean, there's, there's a beast, there's a false prophet, a lake of fire. Like, what, what are we reading? What we're reading is apocalyptic literature. That's, that's what Revelation is. It, that's the kind of writing it is. And it is uh, writing about what is to come, but you'll notice that it, it's not like a newspaper from the future. It, it doesn't read literally. Like, you can just kind of read it and say, oh, that happens and that and that. It, it's... It's painted in imagery, figurative language, symbolism, and so it requires interpretation if we are going to figure out what, what it's saying. And I'm going to say to you on the front end that there are two main ways to understand this scene. Two main ways. Uh, one of them is to see what this is referring to, all the figurative language, in primarily physical terms. That's being described here really as a physical battle that's going on. And the other is to see it in more spiritual terms. And again, I want to say uh, from the front end that both of these are viable options if you love the Bible and study the Bible. 
Both of these are, are good options. There are faithful Christians on both sides that have a high view of Scripture, love Jesus, love the Bible, have studied it hard, and yet come to different conclusions about what is being described here. I'm going to say to you, that's okay. It's okay in the church to have parts of the Bible that are secondary to our faith that we don't fully agree on. And it's okay because, because this is not what our faith depends on. Our faith is rooted in Christ, in the gospel, that he died for our sins, that he rose again, and that he is coming again. There is universal agreement about that in the church. So our faith does not depend on this, and so it's okay if we disagree at times. And it's also okay because when it comes to this scene in particular, the meaning and encouragement behind it is very much the same regardless of which view you take. So here's my plan for the rest of our time. I'm going to briefly describe both of these interpretations, and then I'm going to explain to you uh, where I land. And my hope is that through the process that uh, you will come to an understanding of your own on this, this secondary issue. So um, first, the physical reading of the scene. Those who land here connect this scene with other texts of Revelation. Revelation 16, Revelation 20. They go back to Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. And they would say that this is talking about an actual physical battle that will take place. Often called the Battle of Armageddon. And it will uh, be fought probably outside of Jerusalem. It will uh, most likely involve kind of Russia from the north and China and other nations. And it's going to happen because of the deceptive influence of Satan in the world combined with the intense time of tribulation, what will happen then is when Jesus returns, the powers of the world are not going to welcome him. They're going to oppose him. And so there will be a final kind of massive epic battle. And so what's being described here is Jesus defeating the evil powers of the world in a physical way. There's a lot more to it than that. Uh, but that, in short, is, is the physical view of this. The spiritual reading of the scene is... Um, is rather than seeing this as a physical battle that will take place with, in the future with tanks and rocket launchers, uh, they see this as a picture of the spiritual battle that is going on in our lives right now as Christians. And so what's being described here is the fact that when Jesus returns, it will mean an end to that battle that is going on in our world, in our lives. The agents of Satan, the wickedness of the world, the opposition to Christ, all of it ends when Jesus comes back. That's again short form of the second view. Now, there's common ground, I hope you see, between the two. I mean, the deeper meaning here is very much the same. In both cases, we're talking about real battles. In both cases, real battles between good and evil that exist in a world, continue in the future, and in both cases, we see that Jesus is the one who brings an end to this battle. We also see that this evil is defeated once and for all at the return of Christ. So regardless of your view I would say that there is very good news for us when it comes to Jesus, his return. Because it means some significant things for humanity. For one thing, it means that there is in fact an answer to the evil that plagues our world. If you think about all of the longing of our hearts, not just for the church, but for humanity, for things to be made right, for justice to be served, all of that comes with the coming of Christ. It also means that we have a greater reason to worship Jesus not just when he returns, but here and now. And it means that in the end, good will triumph over evil. Now, for some of you, you would say, that, that's all I need. That's, that's what I wanted to hear. I don't think we need to go any further. If you're telling me that the Bible says Jesus will return, 
that good will triumph, that he will win in the end, then you know what, Matt, I'm not really into studying all of these. There's a lot of imagery here that seems I'm just going to tune out for the rest of the sermon. I've got all I need. Uh, to you, I would say, in one sense, yes, that is what we need to know, that we have a hope for the future, that there will be an answer, there'll be justice, but, but you know, God gave us his word, these specific words for a reason. And it's a good thing for us as Christians to wrestle with texts of scripture, even difficult texts. It's a good thing for us to, to try to come to a point of conviction for ourselves personally, even if it's on a text we might disagree with a brother or sister in Christ. So what I'm going to do, as I said, is to explain where I land, why I land there, and my hope is that for you personally, that either it will clarify your view, maybe you'll disagree with me, that's okay, but that we will be directed back to the text of Scripture and be able to discuss it as a church on our own and community group after that. So, so where do I land? I land in the second view, seeing this primarily as referring to spiritual realities, and there are two main reasons for this. The first is that I... I see it as better fitting the plain, re, uh, plain reading of the text. So by that I mean if you were just to read this, this text, I think it would be difficult to take all of these things literally and physically. I mean the idea that uh, there would be a physical beast that would be on the earth and that that would be part of, the, part of the battle that's going on I think would be difficult. If you're just reading it, you wouldn't necessarily think that that's what would happen. In a similar way, the idea that there's a physical sword coming out of Jesus' mouth I think we would have trouble coming to that uh, conclusion. And see, this is the challenge of apocalyptic literature. These are images, this is symbolism, used to communicate specific truths, but that doesn't mean that it necessarily correlates to physical things on the earth. It can just as easily and very often refer to spiritual realities that are true for us. So for example, uh, the word, the sharp sword, um, that you see in the Bible very often, and it's connected to the word of God. So Ephesians 6.17, talking about the, the spiritual battle that we're in, it says, take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It's referring to the sword of the spirit as a spiritual weapon. Uh, John chapter 1 talks about Jesus himself as being the word of God. And so here, what can be easily understood uh, is that Jesus is coming not with a physical weapon that he needs to do battle against evil, but that in him is the spiritual power. His voice has the power of God, and so what he speaks happens. It affects change both in the physical and spiritual world. In like manner, the beast that's being referred to does not necessarily mean that it's, it's speaking about a physical being. Uh, in fact, when it's introduced in Revelation 13, um, it's described in very figurative language. So here's some more uh, interesting language for you. Here's verses 1 and 2 of Revelation 13. John says, I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, and its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth, and to it the dragon of its power and his throne and great authority. So everyone coming to this text is going to need to interpret it, going to say, well, we're not really talking about a beast with leopard body and bare legs. It, it means this. And so what I'm saying is that the this, I think, makes sense to be talking about spiritual realities. Because in the Bible, what we're told is that there is a spiritual conflict going on. The agents of Satan, demons themselves, are at work in the world. And they do affect our lives in significant ways. Uh, Ephesians 6.12 makes this clear. It says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers 
against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So my point is, if the components of this scene can be seen as spiritual, and if we're told in Scripture that there's a real spiritual battle going on behind everything that we see, then I think it makes sense to take the scene itself in spiritual terms. It's a real battle, real conflict, just not with tanks and rocket launchers. In fact, this is a battle that we are enduring right now all around us. We're seeing it play out in our own lives, in our temptation towards sin, in the temptation to, to follow the course of this world. We see it played out in the rampant wickedness of the world. Just to develop this a little further, uh, from this point of view then, when it says in verse 20 that there are those who are marked by the beast, the, the inter interpretation there would be that people are not physically branded, like not with barcodes or computer chips or anything like that. What it would mean then is those who are marked by the beast are those who are marked by a life that opposes Jesus. That because they've allowed themselves to be deceived by the devil, because they refuse to repent, they are marked by that. It's, it's visible in their lives. And, and that's why I think that the graphic, uh, the language here is so graphic. Why, why it's so, so bloody and the carnage, why they're using that kind of imagery, because, because God is wanting to get the attention of humanity. It's a warning to those who persist in sin that in the end there will be judgment and defeat for those who follow the powers of this world. But it's also an assurance. It's an assurance for those of us who have been victims of wickedness and injustice. It's a word to those of us who are struggling to forgive those who've done wrong. Those of us who are struggling with feelings of wanting to get vengeance, right, to make people pay for what they've done to us, what this tells us, what it reminds us is that in God's universe, no one will, will get away with anything. That we do not have to be consumed with bitterness or with anger. We can, we can let things go, forgive and move on because we know that, that when Jesus returns, there will be justice or there will be mercy for those who are in Christ. So that's the first reason. It just seems like to read it plainly is to read it speaking about the spiritual realities of our life and the fact that they will come to an end when Jesus returns. The second reason that I would give is that it seems more consistent with the rest of Scripture in terms of its emphasis. So here's what I mean by this. I don't know if you notice something odd about this final battle, and that is that, you know, there doesn't seem to really be any fighting in this final battle. Did you notice that? It, it's a bit strange. Uh, verse 19, there's a lot of buildup. Uh, it says, The beasts and the kings and the earth and their armies gathered to make war, against him who was sitting on the horse, against his army. And then in verse 20, it says the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet, they were thrown into the lake of fire, which is hell. But there's no fighting, actually, that goes on. There's no struggle. Which I think is odd. If, you're, if it's what's being described as a physical battle, even if it was over quickly, you'd think there'd be some description of the battle itself. Especially in comparison to another battle that's described in Revelation. Uh, this is actually the first battle between good and evil, uh, Revelation 12, it's kind of like a flashback to the rebellion in heaven. And look at how it's described. Uh, now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan. Now I would say that 
clearly seems like a battle. Even though it's in heaven, which is not a physical place, there's fighting involved. Right? Michael's on one side, Satan on the other. They're battling. There's a winner. There's a loser. So again, my question is why, if there's that kind of fighting going on in the first battle, why isn't there any description of fighting in the last battle? And the reason I think is that it's because according to the rest of the New Testament, the war against evil has already been won. It's already been fought and it's already been won and it's been fought by Jesus at the cross. That is where the decisive battle against evil was fought and won. And in fact, the, the, the Bible itself talks about what Jesus accomplished on the cross in these kind of terms. So look at Colossians 2.15, speaking about the Jesus crucified. It says, He, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Hebrews 2.14, Through death, he, Jesus, might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So the cross is where the war against evil was truly won. It's where Jesus fought. It's where he struggled. It's where blood was shed. But of course, it wasn't his enemy's blood. It was his own blood. So I think reading it this way maintains the emphasis of Scripture that is always on the victory of the cross. And if we look closely in our passage, uh, I think we see a reference to this. So for one thing, when Jesus returns... Uh, he's riding on a white horse, which is a sign of victory, that he's, he's already victorious riding into this battle. But in verse 13, uh, it says he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Which, if this is a physical battle, I think is a little harder to explain because the battle hasn't started yet. And so the question would be, well, whose, whose blood is it? I think the answer has to be, well, it's, it's Jesus' blood. It's his blood because he is the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. And through his death, Satan, sin, and death itself were defeated. Which means that on his return, Jesus will not need to fight a, a giant epic battle with the physical powers of the world. He will simply arrive, he will speak, and the victory that he has already earned will be fully realized. So let me give you an sort of illustration for this. Um, it's a Canadian illustration, uh, so hopefully this will help. Uh, it's a hockey illustration. So if you have in your mind the picture of a hockey game, say a big hockey game, and uh, going into the third period, there's one team that is winning by a lot, and the other team, like it's 8-0. Okay, so you're going into the third, it's 8-0. What usually happens in that third period? Well, the other team, the losing team, they might try to rally a bit, okay, but everyone kind of knows that it's over. And so during that third period, probably what ends up happening is a lot of fights, a lot of penalties, right? They're angry. They want to take it out. They're not really looking to win anymore. They're just looking to rage. That, I think, is a good description of what's going on spiritually right now in our world. The victory has already been secured at the cross. The devil and his demons, they are looking to wreak havoc on our world, not because they think they can win, but because they're angry. But even though the victory is secure in a hockey game, it's not put in the record books until the final buzzer sounds. And that's what will happen when Jesus returns. The victory that he's earned will be finally and fully realized when he is present in the world. All evil will be finally and fully destroyed because of his presence. So, we've seen my view. It's rooted in an understanding of what many scholars have written, but there is another view. What I would invite you to, I hope, is a, a time of discussion. My hope is that through this process as a church, through community groups, through conversations in the parking lot, that we can come with each other and say, let's see what the text says.
We want to root understanding in the word of God in a, in a faithful interpretation of it. And I hope also you see that the deeper meaning is, in fact, encouraging on both sides. That there is an end to evil and that Jesus is the one who brings that end by his grace and by his power. There is, though, one other thing that we see will happen when Jesus returns. And that's point number three. That is that Jesus will be united with his people. Now, my sense is that for some of us, this series uh, is, is going to be a bit uncomfortable. Not just because uh, you might find yourself disagreeing with me or disagreeing with others. I think that's okay. But I think it might be tough because uh, when it comes to the end, there's a lot of talk of judgment. I mean, already just in our passage, we've had battles with evil, demonic powers, graphic imagery. There's this constant uh, threat of punishment and destruction for those who don't believe. And we haven't even got to the final judgment yet. Uh, for many of us, I think it may be, it might feel kind of heavy to think about the end. But here's what I want us to keep in the forefront of our mind because this is, this is in the forefront of, of the whole story of the Bible. And it's this, the heart of Jesus towards the world is not one of judgment. The heart of Christ is not to make war on humanity. If it was, then he wouldn't have come twice. You know what I'm saying? If, if all that God intended for humanity was that there would be judgment, he would have just come the one time and he would have come, judged us in our sin justly, rightly, because we oppose God and that would have been the end of it. But that's not what happened. He came twice. And the first time he came with love and grace and mercy and a willingness to sacrifice so that we would be freed from the evil and sin that plagues us. When Jesus went to the cross, he established the church, us, the, the people of God. And, and that's a continuation of the work that God has been doing in humanity all the way back to the time of Abraham. If you know the story of Abraham, God called him out and said, come, I'm going to make a nation from you, from all of your descendants. And he said to those people, look, here's how it's going to work. I'm going to be your God. You are going to be my people. And I'm going to care for you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to provide for you in every way, physically, spiritually. And we see that happening all through the Old Testament. And the climax of it is the first coming of Jesus. Because that's when the, the love and steadfastness and faithfulness of God is demonstrated to the fullest extent. Jesus came, gave everything on the cross, freed us from sin, and in that we see the depth of his love. The second coming, the second coming is, if we look in Revelation 19, we're going to see it's not just imagery of, of battles and judgment. It's also imagery of, of a unification, of an intimate bond between Jesus and the church, between us. What we get is imagery of a wedding. Now, if you haven't seen this before, uh, the, the imagery is given that Jesus is the groom and that we are the bride. So guys, we get to wear a dress. It's great. That's the imagery that's given. And here's why it works. Because it's speaking about the longing of the heart and something that as human beings we can identify with. So I'm going to show you in Revelation 19 where we get this. It's actually just before all the stuff we just read. And here again is John writing. And look at how he describes, uh, again, the second coming of Jesus. He says this in uh, verse 6 to 9. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. 
And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now for us, that may not seem that exciting, but for the first century church, this would have filled their hearts and their minds with wonder and with joy because, because they knew exactly what it was talking about. Like for us, uh, the engagement sort of wedding process is still pretty exciting, but it's nothing like it was back then. So let me just tell you, in the first century, uh, how two people would get engaged and married. Here's how it would work. Uh, it would begin with a betrothal ceremony. So what happened is the groom, he would leave uh, his father's house, go with his best man, and travel to the other village, wherever his, his bride was that had been arranged, and he would meet with the father. And they would arrange a bride price, the amount of money that he would, he would pay to the father. And when that happened there would be a legal union between him and his bride. They would be husband and wife, but they would not live together yet. There would be a time set apart, up to a year. And what would happen during this time that they are apart is the groom would leave and he would go back to his father's house and he would make a room. And I know for some of you ladies, you're thinking, that doesn't sound very exciting. Well, back in the day, that was very exciting. Okay, that was like the best possible situation, an established household. I know they're very close to the in-laws, but it was a very good thing. Uh, that would be, take a lot of time. He would prepare this room, actually build it, and during that time, the bride would be making herself ready, anticipating the wedding. So after about a year, uh, everything would be ready, and the bridegroom would return. And this time when he returned, he would not just have his best man, he would have his friends and family. They'd all be decked out to the nines. The thing is, the bride and her family and the, and the village, they wouldn't know exactly when they were coming. They would know approximately, right? They couldn't text each other. So they would know that it's coming, but they wouldn't know the day. They wouldn't know the hour. And there would be an anticipation growing. Everyone would be waiting. Everyone would be ready. Is it tonight? Is it tomorrow night? Usually, he would arrive around midnight. And so you can imagine just a town kind of buzzing with anticipation. And then there'd be a call from the outskirts of the town. They'd have people watching, probably some kids saying, He's here. He's coming. And everyone would come out of their homes. They'd go out to meet him, this party coming in. They would gather together, come into the center of town. And the groom and the bride would come together for the first time in a year face to face. And there'd be a ceremony. They would pledge themselves to each other. And then there'd be a celebration. I mean, a real celebration. Like there would be dancing, there'd be music, there'd be good drink, good food. It would go on for seven days or more. It would be like, like a real celebration. There's parts of the world they can really celebrate, right? Italy, they can celebrate. South America, so here, we, I mean, what do we do? We throw a few things in the oven, but they really would celebrate. So what we're getting here is a picture of us and Jesus, of his return. That, that amount of excitement, that amount of anticipation is the same. Think about what's, what's gone on. Jesus came once already. And he paid the price for us. He gave his very life so that we could be united with him, so we could be freed from sin. And before he left, he told his disciples what he was going to do. Look at John 14, verse 1 to 3. He said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And so he's gone. He's preparing the place. He's getting heaven ready for us, whatever that means. But us, we also are making ourselves ready. Because you saw in the text, it said that the bride would be adorned 
in the righteousness, the righteous deeds. That means everything that God is doing in us and through us during our lives, we will be adorned in that when we meet Jesus face to face. And one day soon, we are going to hear shouts from the sky saying, hallelujah, he is here. Jesus has come back. He's here for us and we will meet him face to face, united with him finally and fully and then the celebration will begin. And just like the battle imagery is imagery that kind of points to something else, the feasting imagery does point to other things, greater things. I do think though that we will eat and feast with Jesus because he ate with his disciples after he was resurrected. But here's the point. It's not like we're really excited about a nice buffet. You know what I'm saying? That's not the real excitement that would be in the hearts of the church. That idea of a feast, what it's saying is, look, all of the things in this world that are good and satisfying are but a foretaste of the realities of being in the presence of Jesus. Every, every enjoyable relationship, every pleasurable experience, every satisfying meal, what it's telling us is, look, it'll be that times infinity when you're with Christ finally upon his return. And so we as the church are to rightly anticipate and be excited about the coming of Christ. In verse 9, uh, it says this, the angel said to John, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Because the truth is that we've all been invited. That the gospel invitation is for all. And the warning is for all. Stop opposing Christ. That's what we see in this passage. And accept the invitation by faith to true life and joy in him. We do it by repenting of our sin. We do it by believing in the death and the resurrection and the second coming of Christ. And in this is all of the answers to the longings of our heart and the encouragement for us to be faithful here and now in anticipation of his return. So I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to talk a bit about the baptism that are to come. Our Lord God, we are thankful for your word, thankful God for the pictures you give us, Lord, the truths that you give us about the fact that evil will not succeed in the world. Even though, Lord, there may be things in our lives where we struggle to see you at work, God, I pray that you would give us the faith to be hopeful, to be faithful in the present, anticipating your return in the future. I do pray, Lord Jesus, that you would convict us of sin. Help us see the ways in which we oppose you. And Lord, draw us to yourself. Lord, help us to, to see the good in the world as simply a foretaste of the good you will bring in the end. And I do pray, Lord, for those that have not yet accepted your invitation. I pray as we, as we hear stories, testimonies of those who've been changed by the gospel, those who are united with you in faith. God, I pray you do good work in our hearts. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.